Welcome to the Ralston College Podcast. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Today's episode is a recording of a live online event, a conversation I had with the lawyer, legal scholar, and fearless defender of civil liberties, Alan Dershowitz. I won't introduce Professor Dershowitz here because I do so at the beginning of the event. You can sign up to be notified of future events, lectures, and courses, both in person and online, at our website at www.ralston.ac, where you can also listen to all of the earlier episodes of this podcast. Also, we love hearing from you, our listeners, so please feel free to leave us a comment or to send us a note. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Thanks for listening. Welcome, everyone. Today, I'm Stephen Blackwood. I'm the president of Ralston College, and I have the great pleasure today to welcome Professor Alan Dershowitz to this lecture series. Professor Dershowitz is the Felix Frankfurter Professor of Law at Harvard Law School. He's been a fearless and compassionate advocate and defender, indeed champion, for civil and human rights for more than six decades. He has just published his, and this is not a typo, I assure you, 47th book, that's 4-7, The Case Against the New Censorship, Protecting Free Speech from Big Tech, Progressives, and Universities. We are honored to have Professor Dershowitz on our board of visitors about Alan, another one of our visitors, the late Elie Wiesel, once said that, and I quote, if there had been a few people like Alan Dershowitz during the 1930s and 1940s, the history of European Jewry might have been different, end quote. Those moving words, I believe, point to the importance of courage, not simply to the high cost we may pay to speak and seek the truth, but to the cost far higher if we do not. Welcome, Professor Dershowitz, and thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm a big fan of your new college. And uh, as you know, I've said over and over again that the group, in my experience, that lacks courage most of any group I've met in my 60 years of experience at academia is uh, university professors with tenure. Uh, they have no excuse for not being courageous, and yet so few of them are willing to speak out about uh, against political correctness, against the current vogues, and against what some students, some administrators, and some faculty members want. So I, I am so pleased to be at a college that uh, I think encourages courage and will be a center for the show of uh, courage and free speech. So thank you for inviting me. Well, it's a real uh, honor to have you here. And I, I actually want to start out, uh, you, you seem to me to be as, as, as vigorous as a, as a, as a, as a young uh, man in his 20s, but uh, you, you've been, uh, you've been uh, around and defending uh, these uh, principles and ideals, uh, especially the, the constitutional protections afforded uh, by uh, every citizen of the United States, but indeed the ideals that lie behind those constitutional principles for anyone anywhere. And I, I want to, 
to start right off by asking you about your own formation. I get approached every day by young people, you know, seeking some guidance about about the their own pathway, about how to learn to think clearly and uh, uh, deeply, uh, about how to navigate the the, the shoals of our, our contemporary culture. And you're someone who has always been, well, I don't know always been because I've only known you, uh, I haven't known you that long myself, but you have for many decades been a defender and a courageous spokesman for certain ideas and ideals. And so what I want to ask you, Alan, is, is, is really, it's a very big but simple question. And that is if you would say a few, uh, take a few minutes to tell us about your own formation. Uh, what were the, the influences, opportunities, background circumstances that led you to become uh, a, a courageous and uh, outspoken, let's say fearless advocate of certain uh, ideas and ideals? Well, it's a great question. And it's a great question more than just because I've lived an interesting life. It's a great question because philosophy is often autobiography. Uh, people's philosophy often grows out of their own experiences. I'm not sure my philosophy would be identical if I didn't grow up in a post-Holocaust neighborhood uh, where many of my contemporaries were survivors. Uh, we had in our schools uh, students without parents. Um, we had parents who had numbers on their arms, and they almost never spoke about it. I remember asking my parents over and over again uh, about this, and, and the idea was, no, let's just put it behind us, move forward, and, and try to succeed uh, in America. So I think the Holocaust did have a considerable impact uh, on me. And certainly I became a devotee of Elie Wiesel, uh, who said over and over again, that silence is, is not an option. I, I went to college, to Brooklyn College, which was called the Little Red Schoolhouse, because it was a center of left-wing uh, activism. And they appointed a president of the university, Harry Gideons, from Chicago, who was a well-known anti-communist, and he essentially imposed a form of academic McCarthyism on Brooklyn College. And I became president of the student government, and I fought against it. And although I hated communism, I hated McCarthyism as much as I hated communism. And so I stood up for the rights of communist professors and fellow travelers. The result was that President Gideons would not recommend me to Yale Law School, even though I was first in the class and had very good grades and was president of the student government. So my own experience was fighting against uh, against this kind of McCarthyism. Then I went to law school. You know, I'd grown up in Brooklyn, and in Brooklyn, you don't you don't experience anti-Semitism. Sure, you get into a fight with kids from the Irish basketball team, but you know they yell at you, you yell at at them and then you hug each other afterward. Um, but I, I went to Yale Law School and there I was an incredible success. I was first in my class. I was editor-in-chief of the Yale Law Journal. I was gonna be a Supreme Court law clerk and I got turned down by 32 out of 32 Wall Street firms because in those days, they wouldn't hire a kid named Dershowitz whose parents came from Eastern, grandparents came from Eastern Europe. And so I didn't feel it strongly because it didn't affect my life, but I certainly saw it. And, and all of those experiences, I think, made me somebody who said that he would devote his life to fighting for equality. I was at Martin Luther King's speech. Uh, I was a law clerk in the Supreme Court, and we got a message that said law clerks shouldn't go because there might be violence and the case might come up to the Supreme Court. But I snuck 
in and went and way, way, way at the back. And it was one of the most boring days of my life because speaker after speaker had to be introduced from this union and that group and the other group, and they were terrible. And then along came Martin Luther King and gave his dream speech. And I'll never forget, uh, he was speaking to me. I, I dream of the day when my children will be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And I have been fighting for Martin Luther King's dream ever since I, I, I heard it. And uh, uh, the thing about me that you have to know is I'm boringly consistent. I haven't changed any of my fundamental ideas in 65 or 70 years. But those ideas used to be at the fringe of liberalism. When I came to Harvard Law School in 1964, I was the most liberal professor on the faculty. I haven't changed, but today I probably couldn't get a job at Harvard Law School because of my support of freedom of speech, of due process, of the Constitution, and as a result, because I don't support some of the politically correct ideas that are dominant in American universities today. So I'm very much a product of my Jewish upbringing, of my New York upbringing, of my post-Holocaust upbringing, of my McCarthyite upbringing, and uh, all of those helped me form a philosophy. My biggest flaw is I don't change my principles. Uh, maybe I should, but I don't. But I'm accused all the time of adapting my principles to uh, new situations. It's exactly the opposite, but uh, people have a right to their opinion about me, and uh, they certainly express it all the time. So thanks for an opportunity to talk about my background. Well, uh, just a couple of uh, quick follow-up questions on your background, Alan. When we asked you, in, as we often do to our guests, whether there were works of literature or philosophy or poetry that had been influential, you replied saying that um, Chaim Bialik's poem about the 1903 Kishinev pogrom in the city of Slaughter had been uh, uh, very influential to you. In fact, we shared that in one of the Zoom invitations to uh, your, your, your conversation today. Uh, and I, I was very moved myself by the the immense um, human devastation that is just relentlessly described in that poem, which I hadn't discovered until uh, until you brought it to my attention, I'm sorry to say. Uh, but I wondered if you would like to say a word, whether about that poem or or about your, your being raised in a Jewish household and the ways in which uh, those were, uh, say a few more words about the way in which that was formative of your, your fundamental standpoint and principles. Very much so. Um, the household I grew up in, my mother was a very strong personality. She had been first in her class in, in uh, high school and was going to be the first person in the history of our family ever to go to college. And she went to New York City College for exactly a month and a half. It was September 1929. Well, you know what happened in October of 1929, the Depression, and she had to quit college and go to work and make her $13 a week to help support the family. But uh, she was very, very brilliant and uh, determined that her children uh, would succeed. Just a little anecdote. I, I, a few years ago, I had lunch with Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, in the Supreme Court building. She grew up just a um, couple of miles away from me in Brooklyn, a couple of years older than I am. And she said, Alan, I have a question for you. Um, what's the difference between a bookkeeper uh, in the Garment District of New York and a Supreme Court justice? And her answer was one generation. And I said, I have a question for you. What's the difference between a bookkeeper in the 
Garment District of New York and a Harvard Law professor, one generation. And it turned out our mothers were bookkeepers not far from each other. They may have even known each other for all we knew back in the 1930s. Uh, and, and, and so, you know, growing up in that background uh, leads you to support meritocracy. How does a kid from Brooklyn, uh, like Dershowitz, uh, become a Harvard professor? How does a kid like uh, in, from Brooklyn they, named Ruthie Bader uh, become a justice of the Supreme Court? Only by getting the best grades and by working harder. Uh, today, that can't happen because grades are abolished. Um, grade inflation has failed to make distinctions. The new uh, progressives don't believe in academic distinctions, which means they're discriminating against hardworking children of immigrants who can make it only through uh, a meritocracy. And so, uh, you know, growing up in that in that background uh, uh, and, and always being taught the one thing that was so important is that the whole world can be wrong about something and you shouldn't change your principles. I learned in yeshiva, I went to Jewish parochial school until the 12th grade and I was not a good student. But I learned, of course, that in the 15th, 16th, 17th, even through the beginning of the 20th century, everybody believed in the blood libel. Everybody believed that Jews killed Christian children and took their blood and used them to bake matzah. Um, everybody believed so many of the terrible stories and they were all wrong. And so my mother always taught me, don't believe what other people say. Make up your own mind. Decide for yourself. Don't follow the crowd. They may all be wrong. You know, she would always put it in the in the simple colloquial terms. If everybody tells you to jump off the roof, you're not going to jump off the roof. That's easy. But if everybody tells you that Jews are this or Catholics are this or blacks are this, don't believe them. You've met black people. You know they don't fit the stereotype. You know that nobody fits stereotypes, that every group contains good, bad, smart, not so smart. And so I learned that very early from, from my mother. Um, my family was very anti-racist. My father had a little store on the Lower East Side, and I used to come and work there for him sometimes. And he had his customers. Most of his customers were Jewish uh, uh, store owners from Newark, New Jersey. One day I was working at the store. My father was in the back and I was in the front. And uh, a man knocks on the door. He's African-American. And instead of just opening the door, I called my father. And I said, Dad, there's somebody at the door. And he looked at me and said, why didn't you open it? Because he's black. He said he's one of my best customers. And he really screamed at me. And, uh, you know, things like that coming from a father to a son teach lessons almost as important as li listening to Martin Luther King's speech. Mm. I, I I'm going to return to MLK in a minute, but first I want to pick up on on uh, this this long reversal that you've 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 described. You know, how do you think it has become that the the positions that were clearly associated with uh, with the disenfranchised, with uh, the left, broadly speaking, freedom of speech, uh, freedom of the press, uh, going back to 19th century Russia and, and many other moments one can point to when the, these were the, the principles advocated by those who were powerless and without voices. How do you think it has come about that those, those things that were the very means of securing the rights and freedoms of the dispossessed are now regarded by many as a threat to those very people? There's one simple answer, truth with a capital T. Anybody who thinks they know the truth 
whether it be the early church, whether it be early rabbis, whether it be Stalin, whether it be Mao, whether it be Castro, if you think you know the truth, there's no reason to have dissenting views. There's no reason for due process. And so many uh, millennials now know the, the truth. They know that if a white policeman shoots a black person, of course the policeman has committed a crime. They know that if a woman accuses a man of sexual misconduct, of course the woman is telling the truth. They know that uh, if uh, an election has been conducted and, and the result was their candidate, he was my candidate too, was elected, the truth is the election was fair. I think the election was fair, by the way. Uh, uh, and I think many cops who do shoot black people are uh, have committed crimes. And I do think the vast majority of men who are accused by women are, are guilty. But if you think you know the truth, you don't need a process. It's just cumbersome. And free speech becomes hierarchical. It becomes patriarchal. It becomes uh, imperialistic, colonialistic. For the first time in my life, I am seeing professors, professors at Columbia, professors at major universities, writing essays against freedom of speech, uh, justifying suppression, saying freedom of speech is just a way of articulate people who are usually better educated and privileged, uh, being able to win arguments over the less enfranchised and less privileged people. And therefore, there is the, 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 the response is not to try to elevate other people to participate in the debate, but to stop encouraging free speech as a means toward good results. Because as if they discovered something new, free speech doesn't always cause good results. They're absolutely right. In 1931, free speech did not cause a good result in Germany, um, but neither do elections often cause good results. But as Winston Churchill said about democracy, I would say about free speech, the worst possible way of getting to the truth, except for all the others that have been tried over time. And the alternatives to free speech are always going to be some form of censorship, whether it be governmental censorship, which is easy to fight. I've had like 25 cases against governments on free speech, and I've won practically all of them. But today, the danger of free speech are coming largely from private companies. Uh, that's why, you know, obviously, I wrote my book about uh, protecting free speech from big tech, because I can't beat them in court. Um, I can't take Twitter to court. For example, recently, I debated Bobby Kennedy Jr., Robert Kennedy Jr., the son of the former attorney general, on the efficacy of vaccines, the constitutionality of mandatory vaccines. He is an environmental lawyer, but he's also a doubter of vaccination, skeptic on vaccination. I am much more supportive of vaccination. We had a very good debate. It lasted an hour Thousands of people watched it and praised the debate. Some people said they had changed their minds. Google took it down. YouTube took it down. They said they don't want anybody to think that vaccination is a debatable issue. So some people wrote and said, oh, you won the debate. No, I didn't win the debate. I wanted to win in the marketplace of ideas. I wanted people to think my ideas are better than Kennedy's. I didn't want him to lose by default. I didn't want them to take the debate down. And um, I just think that uh, that's an illustration of what's happening. I'll give you another illustration. In the town of uh, Brooklyn Center, um, the town right near Minneapolis, where uh, a, a policewoman with 27 years of experience made a tragic, tragic mistake. She pulled out what she thought was a taser, yelled, taser, taser, taser. 
it was a gun. She shot and killed somebody who should never have been shot and killed and was indicted for manslaughter for making a mistake, which the law doesn't permit. The head person of Brooklyn Heights, Brooklyn Center, said she deserves to be given due process. She was he was fired for demanding due process because people said they would burn down the city if he was not fired for demanding uh, due process. And, and that's where we're at today with free speech. And the reason I wrote my book is the dangers are much greater when they come from private parties. And, and, and the other reason the dangers are so great today is who are the censors? I talk about big tech and I talk about progressives. So who are the progressives? There are children. There are grandchildren, our nieces, our nephews. There are friends' children. They're good people. They have the same values we have. They want equality. They want decency. They want a good environment. They want less gun violence. They're in favor of the same things we are. And it's so hard to attack them because they're decent people. But as Brandeis, Louis Brandeis, reminded us over 100 years ago, the greatest danger to liberty comes from people with zeal, well-intentioned, but without understanding. And that's the enemy we're fighting. As Pogo said a long time ago, we have seen the enemy and they are us. Uh, this time we have seen the enemy to free speech and they are our children. Well, let me let me try and tease out something that I think is uh, powerfully but subtly at work in what you've said, Alan, that if on the one hand, the problem is a kind of supreme confidence that I already know all the truth. Uh, on the On the other hand, what I take you to be saying is that that a genuine skepticism or humility in the face of the complexity of circumstances or reality, that's not unfriendly to truth. It's actually that we get closer to what actually is true if we have that humility to open ourselves to what we don't yet know, but it is not to say that there isn't a genuine, let's say, uh, objective or transcendent or circumstantial uh, uh, set of uh, realities or truths out there, but rather that it takes skepticism rather than supreme confidence to get at that. I'm reminded actually by, of a quotation that uh, I read in one of your books just recently by Justice Learned Hand, uh, one of his his uh, 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 seminal addresses in which he, he concludes by saying, I will remember that what has brought us up from savagery is a loyalty to truth and truth cannot emerge unless it is subjected to the utmost scrutiny. Will you not agree, he, he asked, that a society that has lost sight of that cannot survive? And so it seems to me what we're, what we're in danger of losing here in our very overconfidence that we already have the truth is the humility and scrutiny that actually allows us to get closer to it. Absolutely. And, you know, most people who have claimed to have the truth over time have turned out not to have uh, the truth. But even if they do have the truth, or even if they insist that the truth is on their side, Learned Hand also said the essence of liberty is to not be too certain about your ideas. And he said, he quoted from Cromwell, I beseech ye in the bowels of Christ to consider you may be wrong. You may be wrong. That to me is the essence of a university, the essence of being an intellectual, the essence of being tolerant, the essence of decency, the essence of democracy. You may be wrong. It may be overstated, but I apply it even to circumstances where I know I'm not wrong. I know the truth about the Holocaust. I know the truth. 
I know that I lost cousins. I know that a 15-year-old boy was hanged in Auschwitz, that a 16-year-old cousin of mine from the town of Pilsno was used as a sex slave and then murdered. I know those facts. I've been to the gas chambers, and yet I defend the rights of Holocaust deniers to tell lies for several reasons. First of all, because I know no limiting principle that if you can't deny the Holocaust, what else can you deny? And second of all, I want this issue to be debated. I want to be able to prove that they're wrong and and bigoted. And it's so important not to impose any restrictions on what is debatable and what is not debatable. That's why I'm so opposed to uh, YouTube and Facebook. They've now appointed this Supreme Court of Platonic Guardians to tell us what we can see on Facebook and what we can't see. And it has some very good people on it. But uh, I don't think that human beings or algorithms should determine what we can and can't see and debate. Tell you about the situation that exists now in the world. Uh, You saw the United States finally and belatedly recognize the Armenian genocide. Of course, it was a genocide. It was different than the Holocaust. In the Holocaust, they ingathered children from all over the world in order to kill them just because they were Jews. In the Armenian genocide, they killed the Armenians who were in their way and wanted to take over their land. They're both genocides. They're, they're quite different in nature. Maybe there should be a different word for each, but I'm glad that the United States did recognize that. But right now in Turkey, it is a crime to say that the Turks engaged in genocide. In France, it is a crime to say that they didn't engage in genocide. Now that we have one international universal marketplace of ideas, it really means you can't debate the issue. If you try to debate it on an an international forum, you're either going to be committing a crime in Turkey or you're going to be committing a crime in France. That cannot be the situation. We should be able to discuss what happened in Turkey, to distinguish it from what happened in Poland, to use the right words to make sure that the full scope of what the Turks did to the Armenians is completely known. Those are issues that must be debated along with the Holocaust. So I don't see any issue that's beyond debate. Look, I wish people didn't listen to anti-vaxxers. I want people to get vaccinated, but I'm prepared to have that debate. And if people want to be persuaded by things other than science, that's democracy. Well, let's go into that a little further because I'd like to ask you about the relation between freedom of speech and other what I would call fundamental human liberties, right. uh, uh, whether they're they're economic or religious, uh, freedom to believe and speak and think, uh, freedom to your own labor, uh, freedom to worship as you as you please. Do you see these 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 fundamental human liberties to be connected to freedom of speech, and if so, how? Well, they're sometimes connected and they're sometimes in conflict. Take, for example, the Muslim approach that non-Muslims, non-Muslims cannot portray in picture form uh, Muhammad. Um, You know, Jews say Jews can do certain things and they can't do certain things. Catholics say Catholics can do things. But Muslims are the only people I know who say that it is punishable by death if a non-Muslim creates an image of Muhammad. I don't know if they know that in the Supreme Court, as you walk into the Supreme Court chambers, there is a frieze on the wall that shows all the great lawgivers, and it has Caesar, and it has Moses, and it has Muhammad. 
he's right there. Um, but uh, maybe I shouldn't have disclosed that because I've now perhaps put it in danger. But the idea that uh, Muslims have the right as part of the free exercise of their religion to prevent me from portraying Muhammad uh, shows a conflict between freedom of speech. It came out obviously in the Charlie Hebdo case bloodily, and it's come out in other cases as well. So there are sometimes conflicts. In the United States, we have a very, very good policy of trying to accommodate religious beliefs. We don't always do it, but we try very hard to accommodate religious beliefs and free speech beliefs. Um, there was a time when there was a conflict. For example, the first major case involving privacy was called Griswold versus Connecticut. I was a student when the case was being litigated. And there, the Catholic Church basically was trying to shut down an abortion clinic um, in, or no, I'm sorry, it was a birth control clinic, a birth control clinic in New Haven, Connecticut. And the position they took was as Catholics, we are deeply offended that non-Catholics, these are some people were saying this, are using birth control in our neighborhood. And the Supreme Court basically said, no, uh, you, you can't, because of your sensitivity, stop people from engaging in a very important right of family planning. The same thing is true of abortion. Now, abortion is a very difficult issue for me. You know, I, people sometimes compare abortion and gay rights and throw them in the same pile. No, no, gay rights is the easiest issue imaginable. Nobody has the right, the legitimate right to protest against two men or two women loving each other, marrying each other, having families together. There's no countervailing interest, period. It is not a serious intellectual debate. The fact that some people can't stand thinking about that is just too bad. Abortion is very different because people honestly believe the fetus is a human being and somebody deserving of protection under life, liberty, and property and other provisions of the Constitution. And their argument is not a trivial one. There, there's a balance. You have to balance the right of the woman to procreate a freedom against the right of the fetus. Some people discount the right of the fetus completely. Others discount the right of the woman completely. I don't discount either. I do think that the issue should be left up to the public through either the courts or the legislatures, preferably the legislatures, but I regard that as a very hard constitutional issue. I do not regard gay marriage as a hard constitutional issue. What I'm, uh, what, what I'm looking to get at here and the, the link between these things is this, is that uh, I mean, one of the two models of Rolston College is Semo Liber Vita Ipsa, free speech is life itself, which was taken from a speech given at risk to his own life by Salman Rushdie on the occasion of the 200th anniversary of the First Amer Amendment of the American Constitution at Columbia, Columbia University. And, you know, the idea is not that we actually think that, you know, you know free speech is exactly life itself, but rather that, 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 that human flourishing, that our own expression and exercise of our agency fundamentally requires the freedom to think and speak about the world as we see it ourselves. I mean, if you think there's a lot of, I think, very, very uh, uh, fundamentally necessary uh, uh, concern 
right now about the the legacy of slavery in the United States. What is that? How can we understand it? But if one thinks about, you know, at the very most fundamental level, I mean, what slavery is, it is that suppression of individual agency in the deepest level. You're not allowed to, to, to worship or work or, or, or think or act or create, have families. Your, 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 your agent, it, it is defined fundamentally by the suppression, the annihilation of individual agency. And what, what, that, what that must mean is that the antidote fully conceived to the, uh, the legacy of slavery has got to be a defense of the individual's ability and an enabling of the individual to, to realize his or her agency in all of its gloriously, irreducibly unique ways. And no one else can no one else can tell you fundamentally what your what your 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 sacrosanct inner agency is and 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 but yet we can't do that i mean the speech is that is the means by which we share the thoughts we have about the world and so your know, speech is in that sense i see it as as it were not simply analogous to but one of the essential means by which we're able to realize all of the other forms of the agency that are fundamental to human flourishing uh, look I, I agree with that but there are some people out there that say no you got it all wrong um the first amendment should be the second amendment the second amendment should be the first amendment that without guns uh we can't have a free society that guns are more important than free speech they're wrong but i'm certainly uh willing to give them their right to say that. But going back to slavery for a second, just to show you what I think the proper role of a university is, I used to teach 18-year-old students a course as soon as I got into college um, uh, called Where Does Your Morality Come From? And I would start with a trigger warning. I'd get 500 applications for 15 spots. And I started with a trigger warning. And I said to them, every one of your most fundamental values is going to be challenged and questioned. You're going to walk out of every class furious at me because you were sure that this was right, and now it's being questioned. And the 15 brave souls, you know, uh, they I think I may have lost 10 or 15 out of the 500 who applied. They stayed in the class. And one of the first things I gave them to read was a defense of slavery by Calhoun or a defense of slavery by prominent uh, Protestant ministers in the South, in which they compared slavery to day labor in the North and showed that people who owned slaves at least had a property interest in them and took better care of them. But the Irish folks who got off the boat in 1856 uh, and uh, just uh, were worked to death within two or three years, or who got off the boat in 1861 and was sent to the front as cannon fodder, were much worse off. Now, the reason I gave it to the students, I want them to even be able to argue the other side of that issue, uh, they're not going to be convinced and they shouldn't be convinced because slavery is horribly immoral. But they have to know that there was an argument that not everybody who supported slavery was inherently necessarily a bad person. They had a bad view and one can understand that view, uh, but we have to understand every single point of view. Today, you can't do that. A teacher would not be allowed to give that as an assignment. A teacher would not be allowed to give an assignment of some sexist material that may have reflected or still reflects a widespread view in America about the role of women, a view that we all reject. So it's so important that students be exposed to the most diverse, most uncomfortable views. My goal at the end of my hour, two hours of teaching that seminar was I wanted the students to come out of the class uncomfortable 
very challenged and go back to their dorms and think about it. And I would give them that assignment to, you know, to write something about it. And the, and the assignments were always terrific because the students had to really think anew about things that they had been told you shouldn't think about. And then I put that into a very large course with Steven Pinker. We taught a course to 900 students called Taboo, the subjects you cannot talk about at college. And we gave a series of, of discussions about subjects that you're not allowed to talk about at college. And uh, it was a great course because the vast majority of students are not these politically correct millennial snowflakes. That, that's just not true. The vast majority of college students are there to learn. It's only the loudest ones that are the ones who are so sure about their views and don't want to see college as a learning experience, but as a validation experience to validate views they came in with. Yeah, well, even I mean, as, as I think, isn't it Mill who who puts it that you know one of the reasons we need to uh, keep before us the 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 ideas we consider abhorrent is so we can remember why they're wrong. And so there is, in that sense, there's a uh, it's it's entirely counter to the very espoused objectives of of the moral goods that are perceived that are uh, undermined by the very. Uh, by the repressive censorship that we see around us, but let's you you actually let's, you mentioned the universities. Let's take this on uh, very directly, Alan. You mentioned them in the in the title of your 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 most recent book, uh, which again is uh, the case against the new censorship, protecting free speech from big tech progressives and universities. Now, my God, this is a hell of a uh, 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 provocative title. I mean, uh, protecting free speech from the universities. I mean, this is uh, this is a, a very bold claim. Uh, uh, let me introduce this uh, uh, just, in, but in a general way with, a, with, a, with an, an equally perhaps bold claim. And I'm going to assert that there has never been a time of human flourishing without institutions that reflect upon and illuminate human nature, its intrinsic freedoms, the history of their development, and the institutions and forms of life and culture that, that allow those to be realized. Right now, universities are the epicenter of a regressive and repressive regime. Not every one of them, not every person teaching them, not an absolutist, absolutist but what, broadly speaking. And I wanna ask you, is the threat underestimated? Are we facing a civilizational crisis or is it something that we can hope will blow over in a, in a few months or years? Well, all of those are correct. We are, yes, confronting an existential crisis for freedom, uh, but I think pendulums swing widely in the United States. You know, we had a golden age of free speech. Um, when McCarthyism ended, uh, we went through a very difficult period of the anti-Vietnam period. It was called the free speech movement. That's the phoniest name ever given to a movement. The people who advocated free speech at Berkeley were advocating free speech for me, but not for thee. They would never have allowed a conservative to take advantage of free speech. So, you know, during McCarthyism, the left was saying free speech for me, but not for thee. Today, many conservatives are saying free speech for me, but not for thee. The people who actually support universal free speech, I hope that, you know, Ralston College will become and turn out thousands of people who will really advocate free speech for me, thee, and everybody else. But at the moment, free speech is pretty selfish. Uh, the conservatives are now strongly in favor because they're the ones who are being censored, just like people on the left were strongly in favor because they were the ones being censored. But the interesting thing is during the golden age of free speech, say from the end of the Vietnam period, but really from the end of McCarthyism until the beginning of the 21st century, most of the major 
free speech decisions were rendered. Um, New York Times versus Sullivan, the Pentagon Papers, you name them. I litigated most of those cases or participated in them. I almost never lost a case when I challenged the government on free speech. The government is easy to beat in free speech cases because we have the First Amendment. Corporations are difficult to beat because they have the First Amendment. So uh, that's why I wrote the book. And that's why I find this to be a real, real challenge. But the interesting thing is that during the golden age of free speech was also the golden age of equality. That's when we recognized civil rights of African-Americans. That's when we recognized equal rights for women. That's when we gave full flourish to uh, equal rights for blacks, uh, for women, for gays and lesbians and transgenders. So, you know, the people who say there's a conflict between free speech and equality are just empirically wrong. They're just wrong. History shows us that when you encourage free speech, you also encourage equality. And we've lost that golden age. It has become tarnished by people on the hard left, particularly, and university professors, uh, and the American Civil Liberties Union. The great villain of this piece is the ACLU, which, frankly, just because it was good for fundraising, they put freedom of speech and due process as a low priority. And where are they in the Chauvin case? Where are they when the head of Brooklyn Center gets fired? Where were they when President Trump was impeached for a speech that he made? They were on the other, either on the other side or they were silent, which is why FIRE, uh, an organization which has some of the same people on its board, as your college has on its board, uh, is so important, which is why people like Harvey Silvergate and Alan Coors and others who stand up for free speech and due process are increasingly relevant and increasingly important. And why I'm so worried, because I'm 82, Harvey is what, 74, 75, Alan is the same age. Um, um, you're a youngster uh, compared to the rest of us. But I worry, where are the 20-year-olds and the 25-year-olds that are going to be the new Harvey Silverglades and the new Ellie Wiesels? Uh, it's very frightening if universities today are turning out our future leaders and our future leaders don't prioritize free speech and due process. They prioritize equality, by which they don't mean real equality, by the way. They mean identity politics type equality, which in the end is not Martin Luther King's speech at all. No, certainly not. And I, I, I tend to, my, my own deepening conviction is that those who are sanguine about this and they go, oh, well, you know, we've seen this before, are, are radically underestimating the civilizational, the civilizational threat. Um, I mean, you, you, you quote again from Judge Hand in your, most, in your book before the, the most recent one, which was cancel culture, the latest attack on free speech and due process, which I highly recommend. You quote Judge Hand in this just absolutely fiery, uh, but very sobering uh, statement in which he says, liberty lies in the hearts of men and women. When it dies there, no constitution, no law, no court can save it. And I think we're right now facing a very serious upstream loss 
of that which most fundamentally undergirds our, our freedoms, uh, our, our love of equality and our institutions. And to, to deny that or to be somehow quietist about it, uh, though we, know, we never know the future, we certainly do know looking back at 19, in the 1920s in Germany and other times what those upstream losses resulted in in other periods. And we, should be, we would be crazy to think it may not happen here. People forget about one thing. You know, we love young people. We love millennials. People forget that the people who burn the books, the first books that were burned in the University of Munich in 1933, the books were burned by students. The first killings that took place under Stalin were done by students, by young people. Castro's revolution was brought about by students. Mao's revolution was brought about by students. And so students aren't always right. Sometimes older, wiser minds have to at least be taken into uh, consideration. So I am very worried about the trends uh, and I'm worried about academic efforts now. I defend their right to say it, but academic efforts to diminish freedom of speech. And we need a new American Civil Liberties Union. And unfortunately, the old one is not is no longer doing its job. Yes, and I think that you know that this is a point very well taken. Uh, young people are responsible for what they they do and say and burn and so forth. Uh, but uh, I think you make the point very clearly in fact one of your recent podcasts that that you know, the universities in many respects are becoming sort of factories of, of propaganda. And even if we go back to the Deutsche Studentenschaft in, in 1933, you know, surely those students were getting those ideas somewhere. And the, uh, the, the National Socialists had been uh, persecuting uh, intellectuals like Dietrich von Hildebrand already for you know, 12 years at that point, recognizing that their free thought was a threat. Uh, and clearly they brought many young people on board with those deleterious and murderous uh, ideas. And, you know, Hannah Arendt uh, did a tremendous disservice to history when she wrote a book in which she called Eichmann uh, kind of the banality of evil, making it sound like Nazism was a banal uh, ideology. Nazism was uh, brought about by serious intellectuals, by university professors, by lawyers, by doctors, by linguists, by philosophers, uh, including one that Hannah Arendt had an affair with. Uh, she should have known better. Uh, Nazism was not banal at all. It uh, centered in universities. Yes, they prosecuted uh, intellectuals, but who prosecuted the intellectuals? Other intellectuals. It wasn't just a populist mass movement. It started out and continued to be very much an elitist academic uh, um, uh, philosophy uh, and, and, you know, people like Heidegger and people like Van Karajan and people like uh, Fert Wangler and so many other intellectuals and leaders in art, music and philosophy were rampant uh, Nazis. Ezra Pound was a Nazi. Gertrude Stein, Jewish Nazi. She proposed Hitler for a Nobel Peace Prize and wrote the preliminary uh, to a book written by the Nazi occupier of France. So, you know, this wasn't just a philosophy done by stupid banal people. It was a philosophy that attracted the attention of lots of intellectuals, lots of young people, and lots of extreme artists. So Dali uh, toyed around with Nazism. Uh, so many people were attracted to the great 
leader on white on horseback. And that's so scary. Yeah, yeah. We, I think we're, we're utterly naive if we think that the the preservation of the lights of liberty are uh, is an easy thing, or that the 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 bringing of young people into see how their own nature is is only most fundamentally realized um, uh, in the light of 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 truth and in the skepticism towards themselves in the pursuit of that truth. If we forget these things, uh, we are we are we are finished. Um, let me get to some of the. We've got a nice host of questions rolling in here, Alan. I want to get through as many of those as we can. Uh, first question from James is. Is there anything more fundamental to our identity as Americans than the First Amendment? It's hard to say. Uh, I don't think democracy can exist in the absence of freedom of speech, freedom of press, and freedom of uh, assembly. Um, but you know, I think democracy itself is not in the Constitution. It's interesting, the only reference to anything like democracy in the Constitution is the provision that the federal government shall guarantee to every state a, quote, Republican form of government, small r, obviously. But uh, remember, the framers of the Constitution were not advocates of democracy. They were concerned about democracy. They set up the Supreme Court and the Senate as checks on democracy. But no, I think freedom of speech is the single most important part of our Constitution. You know, Hamilton was opposed to the Bill of Rights. He said, why do you have to have a First Amendment? Congress has no power to regulate speech, so why do you need to say it over and over again? What he didn't realize is that the states would have this enormous power. Remember that when Jefferson, people forget this, when Jefferson essentially rescinded the Alien and Sedition Laws, what he said was he's opposed to Congress and the federal government prosecuting people for their ideas. That's something the state should do. And uh, of course, now the First Amendment applies equally to the states. So I think it is key and important. And so I prefer the first Jefferson, who said before he became president, given a choice between a country with between newspapers without a country or a country without newspapers, I would prefer newspapers without a country. But then after serving as president, he said, anybody who reads newspapers is less well educated than somebody who's never read a newspaper. So, you know, experience uh, turns you around. But um, although I'm not a big fan of some of today's media and newspapers, I do think I agree with your questioner that freedom of speech is the essence of democracy. Might I add to that, uh, to complicate the matter, uh, let me put it this way, though the First Amendment Maybe genuinely under under threat. There's no guarantee it will it will it will be around uh, as a as a constitutional protection uh, forever, uh, given the the direction of travel right now. But nonetheless, right now we have a strong uh, uh, constitutional defense of the right to freedom of speech. However, cancel culture persists nonetheless, and and the the reason for that is that it's not relying on state coercion in order That's to right. cancel someone. And so what we find is that though the First Amendment is uh, is clearly a, a necessary condition to a, a free culture. It is not a sufficient condition. Well, that's the thesis of this book. And look at what Simon Schuster now, Simon Schuster decided to publish a couple of books by former Republicans, including the former vice president of the United States. 300 people signed a petition, including writers and agents, people who be, should be in support of the First Amendment, saying, no, Simon Schuster should not publish any of this material. Uh, the author of the biography of Philip Roth has just gotten his book canceled and rescinded because 
there were accusations against him, accusations which, as far as I know, have not yet been proved, but it's good enough to cancel his books. I was canceled by the 92nd Street Y. After Elie Wiesel, I was the most frequent speaker at the 92nd Street Y and the most popular speaker. I always filled it up. And a couple of years ago, they told me in no uncertain terms that although they know I didn't do anything wrong. I was accused by a woman I never met, never heard of, and I disproved it by her own emails. Even though they knew that, I was accused, and being accused is enough to cancel you. And so I wrote another book called Guilt by Accusation, The Challenge of Proving Innocence in the Age of Me Too. All of these come together. All of my most recent three books have one theme, and that is you need process. Felix Frankfurter once said, the history of liberty is the history of procedure and process. Uh, if you don't have the right processes in place, the right procedures in place, you're not going to get liberty. And procedures are cumbersome and they're difficult and they're time consuming, but they're absolutely essential. Nobody should be canceled without proof. That's why I called for the creation of a Me Too court, a court that, and also an election court. I suggested two informal courts, VIP Voter Integrity Panel and the Me Too Court, consisting of former judges, former presidents of universities, uh, uh, prominent people. And if you've been falsely accused or if somebody is accusing and isn't being believed, they can bring the case. So there's some process. People who think the election was unfair should have a place to go and have their views at least heard. Everybody should be listened to. Of course, women should be listened to, but so should people who are falsely accused. Well, this goes back to what you were saying that your uh, one of your 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 mother's persistent themes that uh, you know it that the whole the whole world except you can be wrong about something. And one thing that really concerns me about our present state of discourse is the idea that that it can be immoral to state certain facts. Uh, in an interview I had with the late wonderful uh, uh, Nobel not Nobel but uh, extraordinarily accomplished physicist uh, Freeman Dyson uh, he, yeah. who was a, a famously contrarian figure not unlike yourself in certain respects Dyson uh, said to me he said you know the whole history of science is made up of very fiercely held opinions that turned out to be wrong and sure. uh, you know the 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 very idea that somehow truth can be um, uh, immoral uh, that is itself a deeply immoral uh, 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 viewpoint. Uh, I'm going to light. Uh, continue. Please respond, and then I'm going to go to the next question. I want to give you one example. I have in my office um, a phrenology uh, skull. Why? Phrenology was proved to be false uh, with you know locations of parts of the brain, etc. But phrenology had an interesting insight. That is, the shape of the brain has something to do with knowledge. They got it all wrong, but they got something right, which led to very many good, correct insights. So even bad ideas sometimes lead to a truth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, next question is uh, on the lighter side. Uh, well, I, but just for humor, I will read this. Uh, Jason asks, are you playing that piano live, Stephen? Um, no, I wish that I could play the piano like that. That was uh, music uh, written for the organ by J.S. Bach. Uh, it's the fugue from Toccata in Fugue in D minor, that's BWV565, transcribed for piano by Busoni and played by Gerard Opitz. Easily available anywhere online. You can write to us, we'll let you know. It is glorious. Uh, John asks, is the rule of law, uh, is the rule of US law in the future 
destined to be implemented almost wholly by executive branch administrators for the average citizen? I hope not, but we're seeing a movement in that direction. Framers of the Constitution clearly created only one branch of government that was supposed to make the law, create the law, and that was the legislative branch, uh, popularly elected in the House of Representatives, appointed by the Senate, appointed by state legislatures to the Senate. They did not expect either the Supreme Court or the executive to make law, but we've seen both uh, making uh, law. Uh, The Supreme Court claims it's doing it only by interpreting the Constitution, but the interpretation of the Constitution can be so broad. For example, they're going to decide a case this term as to whether New York has the right to restrict gun ownership. Um, uh, Is that something that should be decided by the Supreme Court rather than the state legislature? Those are are good questions. But you're right. Executive authority uh, is a knife that cuts both ways. It means that presidents can make the law for a short time. Because anything that one president can do, the next president can overrule. There is no continuing impact of presidential rulemaking, but there is, I think, too much of it. And I think it, 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 it should be constrained. I want to go back to your music for a second. We all love the music of Bach. Let's remember that one of the things Stalin did most and Hitler did most was to censor music and, and art. Um, uh, when you had uh, people who had to write a music that Stalin and his group would approve of. Uh, There have been biographies of some of the great musicians during the Stalin period and how they they broke out of it finally. Obviously, the same thing was true with Nazi Germany. They loved art in Nazi Germany. They stole so much of it, but they uh, also took down and destroyed regenerative art. uh, And uh, and the same thing happened in, in China. So, you know, censorship never stops with political views. It was Heinrich Heine who said, when you start by burning books, you will inevitably end by burning people. And we've seen that throughout history. Yes. And I think, I mean, this this is just such a vital point because we need to remember that this is not a battle we can win through power. I mean, you can't, you can, by definition, you have to persuade people, bring them into these truths. You can't coerce them into believing it. You, yeah. uh, you know, I think this is very, it's very interesting to note. I, I mentioned the uh, the theologian Dietrich von Hildebrand a minute ago. I've been reading one of his books, his battle against Hitler. He was the son actually of one of the great sculptors of the last couple a couple of hundred years, Adolf von Hildebrand. I encourage our our, our listeners to go listen to, uh, to go check him, uh, about both the, the father and the son, both the sculptor and his son, the theologian, but it's just absolutely remarkable to note that Franz von Papen, the Nazi ambassador to Austria, now just remember, we're talking about a theologian here, said that damned Hildebrand is the greatest obstacle for national socialism in Austria. No one causes more harm. I mean, I think we just, we absolutely have to keep in mind here that the greatest threat to coercion is actually thinking itself. Well, let's remember that the most often misquoted statement from Shakespeare is what he put in the house uh, in the mouth of a tyrannical villain. First, let's kill the lawyers. And that's what every tyrannical regime has done. First, let's kill the lawyers, because the lawyers also are barriers, because we make it hard for them to get things done. I'm I'm having an exchange now, an email with a group of very intelligent, thoughtful people of my age, and about half of them don't understand the role of criminal defense attorneys. If you know they're guilty, well, how can you defend them? If you think they've done something terrible, how can you defend them? 
it's amazing after John Adams' defense of the people in the Boston Massacre and Lincoln's defense of so many criminals and, and Darrow's defense that people today, intelligent people, still don't understand process, how you have to have due process and a fair trial for a Chauvin or people like that. People just don't get it. If they think the person's guilty, that's enough for them. And that's just not enough under the Constitution. There's a, you mentioned early on in uh, this conversation, uh, meritocracy, and particularly as a, um, uh, as, a, as a means of protecting or enabling uh, those who are, who are the have-nots. Uh, that that's the next question that deals with this. Uh, Professor Dershowitz mentioned meritocracy, which is a concept undergoing critique right now. Indeed, his Harvard colleague, Michael, this is all from the questioner. This is not what I think or say. I haven't read this book, but the, uh, indeed his Harvard colleague, Michael Sandel, argues in his recent book, The Tyranny of Merit, that we greatly overestimate the efficacy of our merit-based systems, including standardized testing and college admissions, using Harvard as a prime example of where this focus has led to systemic inequities. What is Professor Dershowitz's perspective on meritocracy today and whether this idea continues to serve us well? Thank you. Michael Sandel is a friend of mine, but he's just dead wrong on this. He's looking at the wrong problem. Of course, Harvard has never been a meritocracy. It's always favored people based on who your parents are. They've always favored people based on geography, based on athletic skills, which should have nothing to do with uh, a university. Uh, and so Harvard starts out as a horrible anti-meritocracy, uh, but we can do better. And uh, what I did when we started to have affirmative action at Harvard I came up with a proposal that uh, no admission statement, no admission statement, nothing that goes to the admission committee should ever have the name of the person on it, the gender of the person, the race of the person, or the college the person went to. What it should have is perhaps you know all the relevant factors. Did he go to a college or a, or a high school that is high performing or not high performing, but not the name. I don't want to know that he went to Exeter or Groton if he went to Bronx High School of Science, which is just as good. I want college admission to be based on only factors that everybody would agree are completely uh, relevant. And um, um, the answer I get there is sure. And all you'd get are Asians in uh, most of our Asian American students in most of our, our colleges. No, I, I don't agree with that. Um, uh, if that were to happen, it would be because Asians today are working harder. Um, and uh, that was probably true of Jews 50 years ago. They were working harder. I don't, I don't think it's true today. Um, but um, I do think we can achieve real meritocracy, but it means eliminating not only some aspects of affirmative action, but some even worse aspects of negative reaction. I don't think that, the, although you know, uh, my children probably benefited from me being a professor at Harvard. Uh, neither of them went there, but um, uh, none of them went there. But the uh, I, I do think that all of those privileges should be eliminated. Um, uh, you know, there are some colleges that give the president, because he has to afford to run the school, the option of admitting five unqualified students if they each give $10 million and that will help the budget of the school enormously. If that's done, it should be done very openly and transparently. And I don't think it should be done. I would like to see a university move toward a perfect meritocracy. I don't think it's ever going to be possible, but I think Sandel used the Harvard model inappropriately without taking into account the long history 
of Harvard's discriminatory policy in favor of certain groups. Yeah, and I think that uh, this is something that is true both upon entry. There's a there's massive uh, failures, I would say, in the in the admissions of our, our of our universities that are not objective enough. We need to remember that Martin Luther King, in I think the year was 1943, was admitted to Morehouse College at the age of 15, having successfully passed their entrance exam. I mean, the, just the the equalizer that a fair play system gives. But we also have a problem, I would say, in the United States, perhaps even even greater about the the standards for exit. I mean, where is the objectivity of what you have to learn before you get out the other side? Um, you know, Cambridge or Oxford, everything comes down to, to, a, to a blind graded anonymized set of exams. I think that's a far superior system. And I will uh, say that at Ralston College, we intend that, that all of our graduates that are, that, that one will not graduate from Ralston College except uh, by having passed externally administered oral and written exams. We think that's the only way to have an objective standard. Um, I wanna move on to a, a question from Mark. Uh, this discussion of the role of young people is crucial. It is fashionable to attack faculty with regard to politically correct sensibilities, but it is the students who shape this discourse and adamantly seek to enforce their notions of acceptable speech on their university campuses. What does Professor Dershowitz think would be most effective in persuading young people in secondary school and college to care about truly free speech? Well, I think we have to begin in um, elementary school and, and high school. And I think we have to be debating free speech and discussing free speech and, and talking about it. Uh, there's, there are cases now in the Supreme Court on free speech in high school. And, um, you know, there was a famous Tinker case where a student came in with an anti-Vietnam banner and the Supreme Court during the golden age of free speech upheld that. There's now a cheerleader case coming up to the Supreme Court. Be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, but of course, the students today in high school live in a different world. They're, they're tweeting each other. They're exchanging sex pictures with each other. Uh, I've had cases now of students being admitted to colleges and graduate schools and then having their admissions rescinded because of something they put on social media uh, five years ago. Um, so I think we have to do a lot of discussion and, and talking about what free speech means in the digital age and what free speech means Today, with identity politics and political correctness, all of this is critically important because I agree. Today's students come to college with pre-existing political views. You know, when I started teaching at Harvard in 1964, the students were really tabula rasa. They were blank slates. They came there anxious to learn. They didn't have, or at least they didn't express strong political views. They really were there with open minds to learn. Today, they want, as I said before, validation of pre-existing views. And when you want validation, there's no real reason to have free speech except for thee, but not for me. Yes, it seems to me, too, that there's a it's really fundamentally necessary to meet young people where they are. And insofar as they are, many of them at least, looking to defend the, the rights of uh, uh, minorities to live as uh, they choose, uh, one needs to connect those 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 rights, whether it's in terms of gender identity or whatever the case may be, um, not of course that there aren't all kinds of uh, problems about the way these these arguments are made, but but in in principle, the it, many young people are moved by the desire to defend whether it's gay marriage or other uh, rights of minorities, and I think we need to connect those not only those those rights to uh, uh, to uh, 
the liberty of speech, but also to make the point that their very arguments depend on the freedom of speech that the, of which they are skeptical. Um, uh, uh, Harvey, uh, this is the Harvey you you uh, you mentioned earlier, asks to what extent are colleges are excuse me to what extent are college and university boards of trustees guilty of violating their duties to protect to protect academic freedom? To what extent have they been relegated to fundraising rather than to their their other institutional obligations? It's a great question, and uh, it raises a really broader issue. And sometimes presidents of universities don't like to hear this. Uh, a, a university is more than its current student body and its faculty. A university is its history. A university is its future. A university is its alumni. A university is its donors. All of them have a right to have some kind of say uh, in the university. And what happens, of course, today is for the most part, um, um, uh, presidents of universities have enormous input on who is on the board. Some are elected. Some universities have elected boards of directors. Um, and I think there's been a movement for some who advocate free speech to try to get to the boards of directors or to the major donors and tell them they're not doing a good enough job in keeping the channels of communication open. And I would encourage parents uh, of students who, who, who believe that their children are not being given an opportunity to express their views, because I hear all the time from parents and from students, we're afraid to say what we believe in class because we'll be A, punished by the teacher, B, ostracized by fellow students. Um, and um, that has to stop. Look, I remember a situation where I had a student in my class, first year criminal law, and he was an extreme conservative. Uh, some of you may have heard of him. His name is, his name is Ted Cruz. And, um, uh, and he would always make the conservative point in class. I think he came into the classroom the first day with his right hand up and never put it down all semester. And a, a lot of the students didn't like him. And they started booing when he would speak up in class. And I, you know, although booing is protected by the First Amendment, in my class, I think I'm entitled to control the demeanor and, and, and decor of the classroom. And so I discouraged that. And I said, please, you know, listen to uh, Ted's point of view. Someday he may be an important person who has an influence on American uh, government. And uh, you know, he was a great student because he always presented opposing points of view. And uh, he and I would get into great debates. You know, in 50 years of teaching at Harvard, I don't I didn't express my personal views on things. In fact, students were very confused because in class I would favor the death penalty because nobody else did. So I had to defend the death penalty. I've devoted much of my life to opposing the death penalty in real life, but I didn't use the classroom to propagandize my students about what I think I wanted to try to teach them how to think. That, uh, that is, uh, uh, that raises a very good question about to what degree we need to fight this battle, you might say, on multiple fronts, both doing all we can from within our existent institutions. Uh, and as I have come to conclude uh, with my colleagues at Ralston College, uh, founding new institutions that are not subject to the coercions of the status quo and the stakeholders who really in many uh, very determined respects are not interested in, in reform. Um, mm -hmm. uh, there is a question here, perhaps oh, this will be our last question. Uh, is there something in particular about the intellectual history of the Jewish people over the centuries that might help us to account for the very large number of advocates for civil liberties who come from that background? 
It's a good question, but I have to disappoint you. I think that's true, but it's equally true that a large number of the students who today are suppressing dissent come from Jewish backgrounds. Uh, a large number of the so-called progressives that are really regressives are people who come from a, a Jewish uh, a background. Look, the answer may be something that happened a few years ago in my classroom. Uh, I was teaching about affirmative action, and I mentioned that in Canada, to be the beneficiary of affirmative action, you have to be a visible minority. And a student raised her hand and said, are Jews a visible minority? And I just responded as a joke. I said, no, we're not a visible minority. We're an audible minority. Uh, we talk a lot. We make a lot of noise. So it's not surprising to me that Jews are on both sides of this issue. They have historically been on the forefront of civil liberties. They helped found the American Civil Liberties Union, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, many other uh, human rights and, and, and organizations that support freedom of speech. But they are also on the forefront of opposing uh, freedom of, of speech. They are on the forefront of all these issues. Uh, that was true in the Bolshevik Revolution. Many of the Jews were Stalinists. They were on the forefront of the worst aspects of Stalinism. And at the same time, they were on the forefront of, of freedom of speech. Um, my, my, my mother uh, would always say she, she liked uh, me to speak out, but she was always worried that if a Jew speaks out too much, it'll hurt the Jewish people. And I got a lot of letters when I defended President Trump on the floor of the Senate saying it was a shanda, which means in Yiddish, an embarrassment to the Jewish people because the Jews are anti-Trump. And others would say the exact opposite. So, you know, the same is true with African-American people, with Asian-American people, with people of every ethnic background, of gay uh, people. You can't stereotype about them. I think there is something in the Jewish tradition about challenge. Uh, remember that the Talmud is the first religious document in the history of the world ever to preserve dissenting opinions. That is, the Talmud has a point of view, and then it'll have 15 dissenting opinions, and they'll argue back and forth. And then the, decisive, the, the decision maker will say, Rabbi so-and-so was right, Rabbi so-and-so was wrong. But the rabbi who was wrong, his views get preserved forever, because someday people may think he was right. So I do think there's something in the Jewish tradition about debate, dialogue, and dissent. But I don't think there's anything in the Jewish tradition that makes you either a liberal or a conservative. Uh, and I think that time and experience determines that more than religious background. But I don't want to end this without saying how much I admire uh, you, Mr. President, and what you're doing and the college. Count me as a loyal supporter of what you're doing. I want to be a part of this experiment. I want to be part of this new approach to uh, freedom of speech. I want to be part of a college that has as its motto, uh, freedom of speech. So please, let's make this the beginning of a relationship, not just a one-off. And I want to be back and help with your mission of creating groups of students who will always be there to stand up for free speech, due process, and constitutional rights. Thank you very much, Alan. We cannot wait to welcome uh, uh, you and your wife down to down to Savannah. Well, my uh, wife, my wife's from South Carolina. My wife grew up in Charleston, and uh, and we have relatives in Savannah, so we're an easy invite. <laughs> all the better. We we are uh, looking forward to uh, all that the future uh, all that the future will bring. I just want to thank you. Uh, 
on behalf of all of our, 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 our listeners for your, uh, not only for your time today, but for all that you have, have done and continue to do in defense of civil and intellectual and fundamentally human liberties for everyone. Thank you for joining us today. We're so glad to have you with us. Thank you for the honor of being at your university, at your college. Thank you. You've been listening to the Ralston College podcast. Today's episode was a recording of a live event, a discussion with the lawyer, legal scholar, and fearless defender of civil liberties, Alan Dershowitz. Dershowitz is the author of many articles and 47 books, the most recent of which are The Case Against the New Censorship, Protecting Free Speech from Big Tech, Progressives, and Universities, and Cancel Culture, the latest attack on free speech and due process. Dershowitz is also widely in demand as a legal analyst and commentator, and somehow he also finds time to host a podcast called The Der Show. That's D-E-R-S-H-O-W. We love hearing from you, our listeners, so if you'd like to leave us a comment or send us a note, please do. You can also join our work to reform, renew, and reimagine higher education on our website at www.ralston.ac. Ralston College aspires to be a home for anyone and everyone seeking to build a free and flourishing human culture. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Till next time. <laughs>